for all who have been able to be in attendance to some or all of this weekend. I think we've, we've seen consistently what a blessing it's been to have Dr. Mark Furtado with us. Dr. Furtado is a professor of Old Testament, Hebrew. Any of you who'd like to, you could talk to him, and he'll be glad to sign you up for some Hebrew classes. Uh, you don't even have to drive to Orlando to take them. We can arrange that online where you can become able to read the Old Testament and in Hebrew. But even if you don't read Hebrew, I think we've gotten a lot out of this weekend. Mark spoke at a friend's church over in Georgia last year, and my friend immediately called me after this and said, we just had Dr. Mark Furtado come and talk on the Psalms, and our congregation was extraordinarily blessed. You need to have him come. And so we are so very thankful that Mark is here not only to bring a scholarly insight into the Psalms, but a pastor's heart to applying it to our lives. Mark, welcome back. Psalm 30. <clears throat> let's, give public, uh, let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it is found in Psalm 30, which is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But your favor, O Lord, by your favor, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I pled for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this part of your word to our hearts and our lives, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of not life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, this weekend we have been looking at the idea of uh, the Christian life as a flourishing life and how the book of Psalms is a manual to teach us how to flourish. And we've been considering various uh, ways in which that flourishing life comes about. Uh, we saw on Friday night that it was a doxological life, that is, that we're a people who know what our destiny is. We know where we're heading and that we're heading for glory 
and that our glorification is ultimately for the glory of God. We also saw from Psalm 1 that this uh, flourishing life is a happy life in the sense of a life that experiences well-being in every dimension of life and that that uh, happy life is a holy life because a happy life goes along with a life that's lived out according to the principles that are spelled out in God's word. We looked uh, yesterday morning in our second session at Psalm 8 and we saw that the flourishing life is a majestic life that it really is biblical to uh, say to somebody, I'm the center of the universe and so are you, and to uh, address one another as your majesty, because while it is true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it is more fundamentally true that we have been created in the image of God and that God is a majestic God, and so by definition we are majestic creatures and we need to learn to embrace and live out uh, our own majesty. This morning in Sunday school, we looked at Psalm 13, an honest life, where while it is true that Psalm 1 says that the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, and in everything they do that uh, they prosper, they succeed, uh, that it doesn't always seem to play out that way in the warp and woof of life, and we need to learn how to deal with that. We deal with that by being honest with ourselves and with God and with others about how we're feeling. We learn to, to say how we feel. We learn to ask for what we want. And we learn how to squeeze that mitt and trust God uh, to work out the results in our own lives according to his good pleasure. Well, we're going to finish our series by looking at the flourishing life as a grateful life. Uh, a life lived in gratitude to God for who he is, for what he has done for us in Christ, and for what he has done for us in our own histories. Uh, Over the weekend, we talked about what I call the big three. There are three kinds of psalms, more than that, but, you know, like you can have jazz music, and you can have blues, and you can have rock and roll. Uh, They're each different in their lyrics and in their musical composition, There are three big kinds of psalms. There are hymns for when everything goes well. There are laments, like Psalm 13 this morning, for when the bottom falls out. And then there are songs of thanksgiving for when God takes us out of that negative situation and puts our feet back on solid ground. And Psalm 30 that we read this morning is really a psalm of thanksgiving. A psalm of thanksgiving comes in two movements. And in the first movement, the psalmist basically describes for us the trouble that he was in. And then in the second movement, he describes for us how God got him out of trouble. That's the simple structure of a song of thanksgiving. Lord, I was in trouble, and here's how you got me out of trouble. Uh, Turn for a moment just to Psalm 66 and verse 16. When I was growing up on in church, on Sunday nights, we had testimonies. Any of you remember having testimonies on Sunday night? That was a great time. Uh, and like we saw in Sunday school this morning, anything good can be turned into bad, right? Testimonies can become, oh, you think you had it bad. Wait till you hear how bad I had it. 
Uh, but nonetheless, testimonies were a wonderful tradition in my church growing up. And uh, they could be rooted biblically in Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. See, that's testimony time. And that's what a song of thanksgiving is. See, when you were in trouble in the Old Testament and you you prayed a psalm like uh, like Psalm 13 and you said, help God, get me out of this trouble. One thing that you said to God was, help get me out of this trouble. And when you get me out of trouble, I will go to church and I will tell people what you have done for me. Remember the old song, Stop and Let Me Tell You? Any former Baptist here? Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Yeah, you know that one? That's testimony. That's Psalm 66, where you say to God, get me out of this trouble, and I'll go to church and I'll tell people how I was in trouble and how you got me out of trouble. So the psalmist here says, come on, everybody. Time for a testimony. Come and, come and hear all you who fear God. I'm going to tell you what God has done for me. And then what the psalmist would do is he would sing a song of thanksgiving. And in the song of thanksgiving, there are two movements. He would start by saying, folks, here's the trouble that I was in. And I want you to know that when I was in trouble, I prayed to God and I asked him to get me out of trouble. And you know what he did? He got me out of trouble. And now let me tell you how God got me out of trouble. So the song of Thanksgiving is just like a good old Baptist testimony service. And uh, that's what we're looking at in Psalm uh, 30. However, in Psalm 30, we kind of get a, a double whammy. Uh, Psalm 30 comes in in a couple of parts. And uh, we talked about this this morning. Remember the extra white space in between your verses? You'll notice some extra white space after verse 3 and after verse 5 and after verse 10. Um, in, in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist really says, he talks to us about the trouble that he was in. And then in 4 to 5, he tells us how God got him out of trouble. But he's so happy that he says, I want to do this all over again. And so in verses 6 to 10, he talks about how he was in trouble. And then in verses 11 through 12, he talks about how God got him out of trouble. So he really has the, the, the movement of a song of thanksgiving, but he doubles it up. Uh, he gives it to us twice. I was in trouble and God got me out. I was in trouble and God got me out. Well, this kind of repetition is very common for ancient Israelites, but it's not quite so common for us. So unlike Sunday school, when we looked at Psalm uh, 13 by just kind of walking through verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, we're going to kind of rearrange this to eliminate some of that repetition. And I just want to tell you David's story this morning. I want to tell you David's story out of the language of this psalm. It's a story of how David was in trouble and how God delivered him from that trouble. And so he's giving thanks. Part of a flourishing life is a life where we remember we continually remember who God is and what he has done for us. And we live out of great gratitude for him. Well, four things. Where does David's story start? It starts with what I call a misdirected sense of security. A misdirected sense 
of security. Divine favor was all over David. Look at verse 7. Uh, we got to go back, though, to our psalm and skip over to verse 7. Notice David says, um, uh, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Now, that's, that's like weird language, right? What on earth? David owns a mountain, and God made the mountain strong? This is a, a little bit uh, uh, difficult to understand if we're reading in all translations like I'm reading from the ESV or uh, the New Living Translation. There's a translation that I worked on as part of a team many years ago, and it's called the New Living Translation. Uh, there, mainly folks in our circles use the ESV, the, uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, maybe some of the, some folks among us use the New International Version. Rarely do we use the New Living Translation, uh, but it's a good translation. Uh, it really connects the text. I, I say it's the mo, it's, it's the translation that speaks English like you speak in the grocery line more than any other translation. Try it sometime and just see how you connect with the the meaning of God's Word as you use the New Living Translation. Here's how uh, it translates this verse. You made me as secure as a mountain. That's really the sense of the text. You made my mountain stand strong. You made me as secure as a mountain. The best image that comes to mind for this is an insurance company. What's the insurance company? Anybody? Prudential. What's the image in their logo? Like a rock. What rock in particular? Mount it's Gibraltar. That's what the psalmist is saying. God, I remember back in the day when you made my life like the rock of Gibraltar. That's the sense of the text. You made my mountain stand strong. You made me like the rock of Gibraltar. See, that was God's favor on the psalmist. Uh, But he kind of forgot that his life being so good was a result of God's favor. That kind of slipped out of his memory banks. He was not living that life of gratitude. He fell into human presumption. Look back at verse 6 when our translation says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Again, the, uh, the, the New Living Translation says, When I was prosperous, I said, Nothing can stop me now. Yeah, that gets at the text, right? You see, David's experience started with a misdirected sense of security. Everything was going well for David. His life was like the Rock of Gibraltar. And then he became presumptuous. And instead of being grateful, he said, nothing can stop me now. I have got it made in the shade. So that's where David's story starts. 
And it is a subtle slide, folks, from depending on God to presumption and presuming that things will always be the way they are right now. Sometime this afternoon, if you have a few extra minutes, uh, read through Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says to his people Israel when they're about to enter the promised land. He says, when you enter the promised land, you're going to have it good. You're going to inherit houses that you did not build. You're going you're to inherit vineyards that you did not plant. You're going to have houses and farms and prosperity, and it's all going to be good. And then he says those, those fateful words, be careful. You know, some folks don't want to prosper as Christians, and for a good, a good bad reason. The good part of their reason is that they're afraid that if God blesses them too much, they'll move away from God. They'll forget God. And they don't want to move away from God and forget God, so they can actually sabotage their own prosperity in a variety of ways. And the reason why they're afraid that prosperity can move us away from God is because prosperity can move us away from God. Yeah, they're right. They're just handling it in the wrong way. Deuteronomy 8 explains this to us. It says, when you're prospering, when your life is flourishing, be careful that you don't forget God. Psalm 8 says, do not say, my hand and my strength have acquired all of this wealth for me. But remember, it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to accumulate wealth and to flourish in all kinds of other ways. At the, at the, about verse 10 of that chapter, uh, Moses really gives us the better solution Instead of not wanting to flourish because we're afraid it'll move us away from God, Moses simply says, when God blesses you, remember to do one thing. Bless God in return. It is that old hymn that is so simple but so profound. Count your many blessings, name them, One by one, count your many blessings, see what you have done. No. See, count your many blessings, see what God has done. I guarantee you that as God blesses you in whatever way, if you will but bless God in return, instead of becoming presumptuous and saying, my hand, my power, nothing can stop me now like David did, instead of falling into that trap of misdirected security, if you will but bless God, those blessings he gives you can only do one thing. They can only draw you closer to him. As God blesses you, you bless him. And those blessings become an ever stronger bond between you and God. That's what David forgot.
He said, when you made my life like the rock of Gibraltar, instead of my saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, I said, nothing can stop me now. See, that's where David started with this misdirected sense of security. Well, what happened as a result? It's what the book of Psalms calls the hidden face of God. The hidden face of God. It's an expression in the book of Psalms, which means that we're no longer under the favor of God. He's no longer lavishing us with his blessings. Uh, but we're that child that God loves so much that he's going to discipline us uh, to keep us on the right path. And so David has a, a near-death experience. Look at verse 9. David says, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? The pit in the Old Testament is a, is a way of describing death. Uh, we might say something like, kick the bucket. Yeah, uh, They didn't say kick the bucket, but they'd say go down to the pit. So David, uh, David is having a near-death experience. We could say David is gravely ill. David has one foot in the grave. If you go back to verse 3, in verse 3, uh, David says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from Sheol. Notice that the ESV doesn't translate this word. In Hebrew, the word is Sheol. They, they don't translate it. They just bring it in and they put a capital letter. What kind of nouns have capital letters? Proper nouns. Uh, like Mark, capital. Millbrook, capital. It can be a person. It can be a place. If it's a proper noun, it gets a capital. They give it a capital because they're understanding this correctly as a place. It's a place where the departed spirits go uh, in Old Testament times. It's a place that nobody wants to go to. Uh, it's dark. It's wet. There's no work. Some of you might like that idea. Um, there's no praise of God there. Uh, and that's why the psalmist is always saying, uh, keep me in the land of the living. Do not let me go down to the pit. Do not let me go down uh, to Sheol. And he says, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. I had one foot in the grave. I was almost falling over the cliff and you snatched me uh, just in time. You see, David was now, his life was no longer like the rock of Gibraltar. Uh, David was experiencing the hidden face of God, uh, a near-death experience. And from having, from being close to death in one way or another, one foot in the grave, gravely ill, he cries out to God uh, multiple times throughout this psalm. Uh, in verse 2, in verse 8, in verse 10, he cries out to God from that, that dark place that he finds himself in because he had become presumptuous and was not living a life of gratitude, uh, not acknowledging his dependence upon God, but was presumptuous, nothing can stop me now. So David has this misdirected sense of security, not a good thing, and it doesn't result in flourishing. 
See, gratitude and flourishing go together. But he's no longer grateful. He's presumptuous. And as a result, he's no longer flourishing. He's experiencing the hidden face of God. Where does he go from there? Third step in his experience is the restorative mercy of God. Oh, God is good. And ultimately, David's relationship with God does not depend on how grateful David is. Aren't you glad for that? That your relationship with God is not gauged by your lack of presumption. It's not gauged by how well you depend on God. It's not gauged by how grateful you are to God. It's really all gauged on how dependent Jesus was for you. How grateful Jesus was for you. And so the restorative mercy of God comes to David. The grace returns to David, even though he doesn't deserve it. Of course, that's an oxymoron, right? To say grace that he doesn't deserve. Well, what other kind of grace is there? There's only one kind of grace. And if if, if it has anything to do with our deserving it, then it's no longer grace at all. Uh, So David experiences the restorative mercy of God back from the grave. You brought my life up from Sheol. You restored me from those who go down to the pit. David experiences the restoration. See, he was in trouble and he cried out to God when he saw the light. And what did God do? God restored him through his mercy. And we get, uh, we get the language of reversal in two different ways. Look at verse five that describes David's experience. His anger is for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Anger for a moment. Favor for a lifetime. Weeping for the night. Joy comes in the morning. That beautiful picture of reversal that David experiences as a result of the mercy of God. Um. Brandon mentioned a book that I have written that's no longer in print. Go figure. <laughs> but you can get it electronically. And the title of the book is Joy Comes in the Morning. And it's, it's taken right out of this, this song. Joy, that wonderful reversal. Sometimes those dark days of the soul are long. Sometimes the night is long, and the night is dark, but joy comes in the morning. It has to. Just like the sun rises every day, God's restorative mercy brings the joy of life in the morning. Look at the language that comes later in the psalm. It's very similar. Verse 11, you've turned my mourning to dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth. That's that's a weird thing, right? How many of you have worn any sackcloth lately? Well, we don't have sackcloth. I guess maybe one analogy would be burlap. Um, maybe wool. When I when I used to live where it got cold, I, I would wear wool slacks. 
They keep you warm. Imagine wearing men wearing wool slacks here in August. No. That's why whenever I used to wear wool slacks, I would pay that little bit of extra money and have them, what? Got to have wool slacks lined. Yes, much more comfortable. Wool, hot, humid, burlap, scratchy, that's sackcloth. And when somebody was in trouble and they were they were mourning and they were moaning and they were grieving in the Old Testament, they wanted their outside to feel like their inside. And so to make their outside feel like their inside, they would take off comfortable things uh, like cotton. No, no polyester, that, that was a result of the fall. Um, <laughs> They would take off uh, the comfortable things and they would put on sackcloth, uncomfortable, uh, so that they would feel on the outside the way their soul felt on the inside. But what did God do? God took off the sackcloth and he replaced that with garments of gladness. And so, again, you see this beautiful language of reversal. Uh, it's like Hannah. Remember Hannah? Hannah was in deep trouble. Because Hannah wanted to have children in the worst way, and she could not. And she was in double trouble because there was a rival wife who not only had children, but no doubt told Hannah that Panina had children about seven times a day, just make adding insult to injury. And if Hannah needed anything, she needed her circumstances to be reversed. And so she's... She's at the tabernacle, and uh, she's praying. Oh, she's praying Psalm 13. She's praying honestly. She is praying so honestly that the high priest thinks she is drunk. And she says, no, it's only 9 o'clock, too early. Maybe if it were later in the afternoon, she says. But no, no, this is not a woman who's had things to drink. This is a woman who is bitter of soul. She pours her heart out to God and she experiences the restorative mercy of God like David. And she goes home and she conceives. And later she comes back to the tabernacle and she sings that beautiful song of thanksgiving in Second Sam, in First Samuel 2. And you have all this language of reversal. The poor are eating food and, uh, and the, the war, the bows of the warriors who were our enemies are broken. And God is taking those who were low and he's putting them high. All of this language of reversal. And that's what David experienced as well. He was weeping for the night, but joy came in the morning. His circumstances were reversed. And how is it possible that David could experience this reversal of circumstances? It's because of the greatest reversal of all time. It's that reversal that we confessed in the Apostles' Creed. That Jesus was not only crucified, but he was dead and he was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he was raised again from the dead. And as God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he says, I have the power to reverse the worst of circumstances that you may be facing. As difficult as your days may be at times, as dark as the night may be, 
If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise you from whatever difficulties you may find yourself in now or at any point in the future. And of course, the biggest difficulty you are ever going to face, you are all going to face. It is coming. You are all going to face the Grim Reaper. Sooner or later, there is no escape. Death comes for absolutely every one of us. And what is our only hope in life and in death? But that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, who has lived a perfect life of righteousness in our place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for absolutely every sin we ever have or will commit. And he ascended to the Father's right hand, having been raised from the dead, where he's praying for you now that you will make it all the way home and that when the grim reaper comes, he has no power over you. Because you know that joy comes in the morning. You know there is that great getting up day. And in that great getting up day, you will experience joy that is unthinkable, unimaginable. And you will look back at all the dark nights of the soul. And you will say, it was just a flash in the pan. It was just a brief moment. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. God will bring you through. He will bring you through your worst cases of presumption. Your grandest times of saying, nothing can stop me now. God will say, yeah, you're absolutely right. Nothing can stop you now. But it's not because of your arm. It is not because of your power. It is because I sent my son to live for you and to die for you and to be raised for you, to ascend to the Father's right hand, to pray for you, so that nothing in heaven and earth will stop you from making it all the way home. And that's why we live this life of gratitude. It's gratitude because of who God is and what God has done for us. Have you ever noticed in our culture how many people say, I am thankful? And then if you were to ask them, to whom for what? It's very, very vague. Our gratitude is not vague. We know to whom we are thankful. We know for what we are thankful. I am thankful is not a pious platitude. It is deep gratitude that comes out of deep understanding of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ and what God continues to do for us every day of our lives until we make it all the way home. That's why David ends with this deep sense of gratitude. Triple thanks. Now, one of the strengths of the ESV that many of us use is that if there's a a word repeated in the Hebrew Bible in a particular psalm, they're going to try to use that same word so that you as English readers can capture the repetition. Uh, But as they say, even Homer, uh, even Homer nods. Uh, Look at verse 4. In the second half of verse 4, We have in the ESV, sing praise to the Lord, O you his saints. There it is, give thanks. So there's one, give thanks. Now go to the second half of verse 9. In the second half of verse 9 we read, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust 
Oops. Praise. Yeah, it's the same word as back in verse four. We could better translate it. Will the dust give thanks? And then if you go down to, um, uh, if you go down to verse 12, that, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. So two out of three, that's not bad. There's triple thanks running through this psalm. See, that's the point. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. David learned the error of his way. He's no longer saying, nothing can stop me now. He's saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. See, stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Triple thanks and now dependent exaltation. We learned over the weekend that Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat stuff. And often they taught them to repeat something at the beginning and at the end to kind of like wrap the whole thing up in a nice package. Like Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How's it end? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, look at how the psalm starts in verse 1. In verse 1, David begins by saying, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. David says, I'm going to start by exalting God. And then go to the last verse, verse 12, and look at how David ends this poem. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. I will exalt you. I will praise you. I have returned from the error of my way. No longer a misdirected sense of security. Nothing can stop me now. Now I am living out of that that biblical space of dependence on God. And, And how do we know that we're living in dependence on God? One word. Grateful. When you are grateful in your heart to God for who he is and what he does, that is the sure symptom of a dependent life. I've had some symptoms over the weekend, you may have noticed. Uh, Inside, there's this thing called a sinus infection. And when you have something like that inside, it manifests itself on the outside. I was telling Brandon, I, I, yesterday I just finished my 10th day. I'm finally done, uh, antibiotics. Man, those antibiotics have given me the weirdest dreams 10 nights in a row. I'm hoping tonight I have not a single dream. Bizarre dreams. So you see what's going on on the inside. You can't see, but it manifests itself. What's going on inside of you this morning? Is it a misdirected sense of security? Nothing can stop me now. Or is it a humble dependence on the mercy and the favor of God? You can tell. Take your temperature, not with a thermometer, but with a gratitude meter. The level of gratitude on the outside is a manifestation of the level of dependence 
on the inside. May God grant us grace to flourish, and in particular to flourish in his presence by living lives of great gratitude to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Holy Spirit, seal this word on our hearts that we might live gratefully before you now and forevermore. And, uh, okay, we're not going to do that perfectly. We sure thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice for our sins and the perfect life of righteousness in our place. The perfect high priest who is praying for us right now that we will make it all the way home in spite of the fact that we do not do such a perfect job at living in dependence on you with gratitude in our hearts. And so for that, we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.